last week we started looking together at 2 Corinthians. We said that this is the most personal and also the most intense of all of Paul's letters. And it was written to one of the most dysfunctional churches that Paul knew. Last week we looked at the introduction to the letter, and this morning we come to a passage dealing with God's yes and our amen. It's continuing in chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1158. 2 Corinthians 1, and I'll pick up at verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, and no, no. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This is God's word. And the message of this passage is very simple. We must place great importance on living faithful lives, because we are messengers of a faithful God. We must place great importance on living faithful lives because we are messengers of a faithful God. We're going to look at this under the two halves of that message. First, in verses 12 to 17, we must place great importance on living faithful lives. Obviously, there's a background to what Paul is saying here. By the time he's writing this letter, he has visited the city of Corinth twice. The first time, he stayed there for 18 months, and the church began in the city. Today, we would say he planted the church. Then, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, 
he told them about his plans for a second visit. He said he would visit them for a while. And he would visit them on his way from Macedonia to Jerusalem. But that's not how things turned out. What actually happened was he made a short visit to Corinth before he went to Macedonia, still intending to come back for a longer visit on his way back from Macedonia. But that longer visit never happened. In the passage we'll look at next week, Paul will explain why it never happened. There was a very good reason. But the important point for us this week is that Paul told the Corinthians about two different plans for visiting them, and neither of those plans turned out to be what actually happened. He did visit them, but he didn't fulfill either of the plans he had told them about. And his visit turned out to be a short visit instead of a long one. Why is it important for us to understand this? It's important because of the way the Corinthians were interpreting all of this. They were accusing Paul of being fickle and unfaithful. At least some of them were. We don't know where we are with this guy. We can't trust him. Now, under normal circumstances, those altered plans probably wouldn't have provoked much of a stir at all. But Paul has opponents in Corinth, men who want to gain authority in the church there. And those opponents are seizing this as an opportunity to turn the church against Paul. They're saying to the church, he's not a man of his word. Forget him. Now, with that background in mind, we're in a position to understand what Paul says here. He believes that he's innocent of the charge of being unfaithful. And he knows that these charges could do damage to the gospel message. They could put the church in the hands of his opponents. And we'll see in the weeks to come, his opponents are nasty pieces of work. So Paul defends himself here. What we find is that throughout Paul's life, he sometimes defends himself, and sometimes he doesn't. When defending himself will help the cause of the gospel message, Paul will defend himself. Otherwise, he refuses to fight his corner. In other words, at its heart, Paul's self-defense isn't really self-defense at all. It's defense of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Paul is not afraid to admit his faults and his feelings. But he knows the importance of a life that backs up the gospel message. He believes that in this case, he has not been faithless and fickle. So he defends himself against the charges. Look again at verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. 
The word boast is going to appear many times in this letter. In fact, it occurs more times in this letter than in all of Paul's other letters put together. So we ought to be clear what Paul means by it. Several times in his letters to the Corinthians, he says our boasting can only be in the Lord. When you and I use the word boast, we usually mean self-confidence and self-glorification. We boast about what we've done or what we're going to do. But Paul boasts about what God has done or is going to do. He boasts about the work God has done in the lives of others. So for Paul, boasting is not about self-confidence. It's about confidence in God. And sometimes it just means confidence, being sure about something. Sometimes it means taking justifiable pride in something, like God's goodness or the progress of his Christian brothers and sisters. In this particular situation, Paul is confident that he has acted with straightforwardness and sincerity. The NIV says holiness and sincerity, but straightforwardness and sincerity is probably better. And when he says this, he is not boasting about himself. He says the straightforwardness and sincerity are from God. Paul is making the point that in his general conduct, his way of life, and specifically in his relations with the Corinthians, he has behaved without deviousness, without deception. He hasn't been pursuing some worldly or self-serving agenda. He hasn't been changing his plans carelessly to suit himself. Any changes have been according to God's grace. In other words, they've been with the good of God's kingdom in mind. Paul says his conscience is clear on this. So we're to assume that Paul has searched his conscience carefully. He hasn't just assumed that he's innocent. He has searched his conscience to see if he's innocent. And in verse 13 he says... We do not write to you anything that you cannot read or understand. What he's saying is when I write letters to you, you don't have to read between the lines, do you? You don't have to try and figure out my agenda. Aren't my letters clear? Don't they show what motivates me? Where my heart is? And then he goes on. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord Jesus is the day of Christ's return. On that day, everything will be exposed. Everyone's motivations will be made known. And Paul says to the Corinthians, I have full confidence for you on that day. I don't doubt your sincerity. You're men and women who love the Lord. You might be rough diamonds. You might have people among you who are trying to lead you astray. But I believe, Paul says, in the reality and the sincerity of your faith. 
And Paul says, I hope that you will come to have the same confidence in me. Maybe my time with you and my letters have left you, left you only half convinced about me. But I hope that changes for the better. Not just when Christ returns, but now, today. And as we listen to what Paul's saying here, isn't that what we're to work for as a church? Aren't we to work to understand and to trust one another? And that will involve two commitments from all of us. First, it will involve not making assumptions about each other, not jumping to conclusions about a brother or sister. All of us, I think, have a tendency to make quick judgments about each other, often without really knowing the other person. So we need to commit to try and understand each other. But second, we need to aim to be trustworthy people ourselves. If I'm living a faithless and fickle life, then what's needed is not for everyone else to be more understanding. What's needed is for me to be more faithful. Faithful to my commitments and my responsibilities. If Paul had acted unfaithfully to these people, he would have had no grounds for saying, I hope that you come to understand me. That would have just been refusing to address his own failure. In Paul's case, he has been faithful, and the problem is one of misunderstanding. So the challenge for us is to work to understand others and to be faithful and trustworthy ourselves. And in verse 15, Paul goes on. Because I was confident of this, in other words, because I thought we understood and trusted each other, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, and no, no? Certainly this is exactly what Paul's opponents are accusing him of. He's fickle and unfaithful. He'll change his plans at the drop of a hat as the mood suits him. One minute it's yes, yes, and the next it's no, no. Remember, Paul's opponents are getting their fuel from the fact that the plan he has just mentioned never materialized. And at this point, we need to ask, what's the heart of the issue here? Because this is a very specific situation. Where's the relevance? What's the, the point of this? Well, behind the travel plans and behind Paul's defense of his own integrity... What's the core? The heart of the issue is given to us in the next verses. Verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, 
was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Paul knows how important it is that the Corinthians trust him because he carries a message of a trustworthy, faithful God. If these people don't trust Paul, what chance is there that they'll trust his message? And again, it's important to see this is not about Paul trying to appear trustworthy. He lives his life determined to be trustworthy. And he lives it that way so that his life will earn a hearing for his message. Paul is defending himself here because he has acted faithfully. And he doesn't want a false accusation or a misunderstanding to destroy the power of his message. Paul knows that if he gets a reputation for fickleness, the weighty message that he brings is not going to be received. So the point here is not we must fight to justify ourselves so people will think well of us. No, the point is we must place great importance on living faithful lives because we are messengers of a faithful God. As Christians, we are called to be diligent and faithful people because we are to reflect the faithful character of our God. We are to be faithful in our responsibilities at at work, at home, and in the church. We are to mean what we say and do what we say because that's what our God is like. If our lives are characterized by yes, yes, and then no, no, people are either going to tune out our message or they'll assume God is just as untrustworthy as we are. Paul is not perfect, but he's determined to pursue a life of faithfulness. Not for its own sake, but for God's sake. And that's why when he knows he has been faithful, he'll try to prove it. Not for his own sake, but for God's sake. So that the truth about God's faithfulness will get a hearing. And look at Paul's description of God's faithfulness. In verse 19 he says, The Son of God was not yes and no. In other words, there were no contradictions in Jesus' life. No hypocrisy, no false impressions, no deception. Instead of yes and no, Jesus' life was one big yes. And if we're wondering what Paul means by that, we find out in verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Before Jesus came, God had been making promises for a couple of thousand years. To Abraham, a nomad in the desert, God said, I will make you into a great nation. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. To David, a shepherd who became king, God said, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. 
I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Through Jeremiah, God said to his people, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Through Ezekiel, God promised his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's just a little sample of God's promises. We can include a whole lot more. In a sense, the laws about animal sacrifices were all promises. Every time a lamb or a bull was slaughtered on the block, it was a promise of the ultimate sacrifice who would come. And here Paul says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. If the Old Testament was one big promise, Jesus Christ is one big fulfillment. Maybe sometimes we wonder, what's the point of the Old Testament? What was the point of all those years of history? When the man and woman fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, why didn't God move straight to the cross? If sin was the problem, why have all that history between the sin and the Savior? Surely part of the answer is that we need all that history to see the glory of the Savior. We needed that history to see how much we needed a Savior. As we look at that history played out in the Old Testament, we see that sin has broken this world in every way. First and foremost, it's broken our relationship with God. Also, our relationships with each other. Our relationship with this created world that we live in. We're even broken within ourselves. Our thinking is broken. We mistake folly for wisdom. Our desires are broken. We want things that can only destroy us. Our emotions are broken. We're excited by things that are empty. Our bodies are broken. They're weak and they're unreliable. The Old Testament shows us the full extent of our brokenness. It shows us that sin is not just a surface scratch on the world. It's not just a minor ailment in our lives. Sin goes all the way to the core. Its tentacles are deep into everything. They're deep into our own hearts. But even as the Old Testament shows us the reality of our situation, we find something else. At every step of the way, we find God promising. I have better things for you. This is not all there is. I made you for more than this. And then finally, 
the fulfillment of God's promises arrives. The Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's yes to our need. He's God's yes to all those promises to meet our need. Jesus is the Savior we need. He's the healer we need. The mediator and advocate that we need. He's the solid rock that we need. Colossians says he's the treasure house of wisdom and knowledge we need. God is faithful. In Jesus Christ, God has shown himself to be faithful. And look at what that leads to. Look how Paul finishes verse 20. The verse begins, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so, through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. What does the word Amen mean? It basically means we agree. We are on board with this. This is what we believe. This is what we know to be true. When someone prays and we all say Amen at the end, that's what we're saying. We agree. Now in the context here, Paul doesn't just mean that we say the word Amen. It includes that, but it means much more than that. How did God say yes to all those promises? He did something. He sent Jesus, and Jesus died and rose. So how do we say amen to what God has done? We do something. We accept and honor and obey Jesus. Paul says Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises. He's the big yes. And as we worship and obey Christ, we are answering back, Amen. We agree. And we show that we agree by giving our lives over to Christ. You'll notice that Jesus Christ is the center of all this. It all goes through him. He fulfills God's promises to us. And as we worship and serve Jesus, we're giving glory back to God. It all goes through Jesus. During his time on earth, Jesus said, I am the door. Now when he said that, he meant he was the only way into God's kingdom. But that picture also helps us understand what Paul is saying here. Jesus is the door through which God's blessings come to us. And he's also the door through which our worship goes to God. If we seek God's blessings anywhere other than Jesus, we're going to be disappointed. And if we try to glorify God apart from Jesus, we'll discover we haven't been worshiping God at all. Jesus is the door for God's yes to come to us and for our amen to go to God. And actually, verse 20 is setting out the truth that's at the heart of our whole passage. We must place great importance on living faithful lives 
because we are messengers of a faithful God. God keeps his promises in Christ. He's faithful. And as God's witnesses in this world, we are to live faithful lives ourselves. Our lives are to be a living, visible amen to God's yes. Earlier in the service we stood, many of us, and affirmed our commitments as members of this church. Some of us did it for the first time. For most of us, it was a recommitment. And remember what we said together. I've just picked out a couple of sentences. As a new person in Christ, I seek to live a holy life as a child of God, being obedient to his word. As a member of the family of God, the spiritual and material welfare of all members is my concern, encouraging me to love and pray for each member. I seek to bear a distinct witness to God in the world by word and quality of life. This is what it means to say amen to what God has done through Jesus. We don't just say our amen, we live it. I think when we hear this kind of challenge, we tend to respond in one of two ways. Some of us just sink lower down in our seats. We feel inadequate and overwhelmed when we hear this. We sense our own weakness and failure very strongly. And we just feel floored by the call to live a faithful life. It just seems beyond us. That's one reaction. But some of us respond very differently. We quite like a challenge like this. We feel motivated by it. And we start planning how, beginning tomorrow, we're going to be super victorious Christians. We'll get our act together. And our life will say a louder amen than anyone else's. But really, both of those reactions are misguided. Because both of them focus on me. Either what I can't do or what I'm going to do. And so they're both misguided. The first reaction misses the point. Because it only focuses on my own weakness. The second reaction misses the point because it only focuses on my own energy and strength. It's good to be aware of our weakness. It's good to be aware of our responsibility as well. But what we need to do and what Paul calls us to do is to focus on God's faithfulness. Look at verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you Stand firm in Christ. It's only as we focus on God's faithfulness that we'll be faithful people ourselves. God has promised us everything we need, and He keeps His promises. He will give us the strength to be faithful people, He will make us stand firm in Christ. One of the psalmists said this to God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. 
and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We fuel our own faithfulness by focusing on God's faithfulness. So when a preacher challenges you about living for God, don't focus on your own weakness. Don't focus on your own strength either. Focus on the faithfulness of God. In Christ, he has given you everything you need. And in Christ, he makes you stand firm. Sin is very attractive. It promises us so much every day. Unfaithfulness is attractive. It's so much easier to walk away from a difficulty than to face it. But when we focus on God's provision for us and his faithfulness to us, sin becomes less attractive. It has less of a pull. And unfaithfulness becomes less of an option. Look finally how Paul finishes this little section off. The end of verse 21. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Part of God's yes in Christ is the provision of the Holy Spirit of Christ. And Paul describes this in three ways. I think these are all aspects of what it means to have the Holy Spirit. God anointed us. He set us apart for his service. That's what it meant when someone was anointed with oil in the Old Testament. You and I have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Paul says God set his seal of ownership on us. We're secure because we belong to him. God is not going to abandon what belongs to him. And Paul says, God put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God has made a huge investment in his people. He will see the project through to the end. Or as Paul puts it elsewhere, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Maybe we hear this, we hear about the Holy Spirit being a guarantee of what's to come, and we know this is supposed to be an encouragement to us, but we're not sure where the evidence of the Spirit is in our lives. We still seem so spiritually weak. We still fall into sin. We still struggle to be faithful people. If we feel that way, it's helpful for us to look back Because if we only go by how we feel today, well, we're always going to feel weak. The Spirit's job is not to make us feel that we've arrived. Part of His job is to keep showing us more of our sin. If the Spirit is active in our lives, we'll always be conscious of sin. 
because there's always more sin to be rooted out of our lives. So the test of whether the Holy Spirit is at work in us is not how great we feel about ourselves today. Sometimes we see his work best when we look back on our lives. Hasn't he led us? Hasn't he shown us things in our lives that we needed to turn away from? It's true that we're a long way from perfect, but hasn't he been at work in us over the years, over the decades? That's a sign of God's faithfulness to us. Living the Christian life takes a lifetime. And God will be faithful to us over a lifetime. We are not what we will be, but we're not what we used to be either. One of our hymns says, All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide? God has been faithful to us. And as we aim to be faithful people ourselves, God will continue to be faithful. And so we must place great importance on living faithful lives because we are messengers of a faithful God. We're going to close with two songs. The first song reminds us of God's yes. And the second song is a prayer for God to help us with our amen. So we'll stand and sing, What a mystery I see, and then, O Lord, who came from realms above. There's no surprise that God mentions 